Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast. It's a show filled with family history research strategies and techniques, news and entertainment, and inspiration. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Genealogy Gems Podcast episode number 198. What fun it's been to put together this episode. I hope that you'll consider each segment a holiday treat that I've wrapped just for you. Just like what you might find under a Christmas tree this season. Some of today's show is practical stuff you can use right away. Um, Some of it is what you might call inspiration gifts. And I've added a couple of just for fun sparkles too. And since we're all family history lovers here, consider all of these gifts wrapped in the same theme that we all love, heritage and history. Three of my favorite little gifts in this episode actually come from you today, from a listener and two conference attendees. They each have inspiring success stories that they're going to share. A Google search with great results, uh, a brick wall busting marriage record, and another YouTube find for family history. And I've been hearing a lot of those lately. They're awesome. So everyone should find a surprise under the tree. And I've got a surprise interview for you today, too. Now, usually we only invite our Genealogy Gems book club author to the premium podcast. But I invited Sarah Christman to join us here today, too. She's a Victorian lifestyle expert because she's chosen to live like it's that time period in her everyday life. You can imagine that. She's going to talk to us later about Victorian holiday traditions, a little history, a little nostalgia, and again, a little sparkle. After our chat comes a little crafting history. You'll hear why the Victorians get credit for inventing scrapbooking how it was different than today's hobby, and why I think Victorian scrapbooks actually have a lot in common with the way we use social media today. I always love receiving tech-related gifts, the cutting-edge kind that I can't wait to try out, and your DNA guide, Diane Souther, joins us later in this episode to talk about MyHeritage's new DNA test and what she likes so far about what they're doing. Now, before we tear into all of this, I bring you first a couple of stocking stuffers. For those of you with German and Scottish roots, I've got some news about a big, big German conference and a freshly overhauled Scottish website. If you've got German roots, you're going to want to mark your calendars for the first ever German-American Genealogy Partnership Conference. It's being held in Minneapolis, Minnesota from July 28th to the 30th of 2017. And they're going to have an all-star lineup of speakers from around the world, including U.S., Germany, and Australia. They'll offer 70 presentations over three full days on the theme, Connections, International, Cultural, Personal. Topics are going to include the major German-speaking regions, and there'll even be social networking opportunities each day for those who have common interests in specific regions. The conference hotel rooms are already taking bookings, and registration for the conference itself opens up in January of 2017. So for the full scoop, go to www.ggsmn.org and click 2017 GAGP Conference. 
And one of the speakers at the conference is going to be Jim Beidler, who has been a guest here on the podcast before. You can get 15% off his newest book. It's called Trace Your German Roots Online. It's fabulous. And you can do that when you use the link in our show notes for this episode, 198, and our coupon code, Genealogy Gems. 15. And you got to do this before the end of December 2016, when that coupon, that special extra 15% off expires. So that's 15% off even any sale prices that you find on that book or any book over at Shop Family Tree. So head to our show notes for episode 198. You can get there by going to our website, genealogygems.com. Uh, hover over podcast, click Genealogy Gems, and then click this episode number, 198. And again, the code is Genealogy Gems 15. That's good through the end of 2016. And as I do with everything else that I uh, mention in this episode, I'm going to put links in those show notes for all the things we talk about so you can refer to them later. And I reported a few months ago that the Scotland's People website was transitioning out of Find My Past Stewardship. The new stewards were mum for a while as they got things kind of up and running on a new Scotland's People website. Now the site is revamped and relaunched with several new features and new free content. The new site features a mobile-friendly web design, which is really nice when you're looking at it on your smartphone or your tablet, and they have an enhanced search function, which lets you locate and view records more easily. You now have both a quick search option for searching index records by name and an advanced search for specific types of records. So what about that free content? Well, their site names indexes to statutory records of births, deaths, and marriages, uh, registers of corrected entries, transcriptions of the 1881 census, coats of arms up to 1916. And the site also says, and I quote, an exciting change is the addition of more than 150,000 baptism entries from Scottish Presbyterian churches other than the old parish registers of the Church of Scotland. More of these records will be added in the near future, including marriages and burials. Over the next few months, more types of records held by National Records of Scotland, including records of Kirk Sessions and other church courts, will be added, unquote. So the site is scotlandspeople.gov.uk. It's free to explore, and there are handy how-to guides for using that website. Those always come in handy because they're specific to the site, uh, and it'll help you with using Scottish records such as statutory records, church registers, and census returns. So again, I'll have links to that in the show notes for you. All right, well, let's jump right into those success stories, and we will do that over at the mailbox. Bring me a letter from my old hometown, one with some jokes from my old pal Jim Brown. Bring me from that girl of mine Saying that she's longing for me all the time Bring me a letter 
letter from my proud old dad who knows that we are winning and I bet he's glad but more than any other from Joan not long ago in response to one of my frequent requests for your success stories. I love reading these and sharing them with you here on the podcast. So they can inspire us and they can even teach us something. And here's Joan's story about successful Google searching for her family history, apparently on two families. She says, I used one of the handy tints from your presentation at the South Orange County California Genealogical Society's all-day seminar. It was in Mission Viejo, California. I entered some of my common named ancestors, used the quotation marks, added a time frame, and included some words like locations. And she's referring to search operators, things that I talk about uh, in my presentation, as well as in my book, The Genealogist's Google Toolbox. That's the second edition. She says, most of what I have found were my own queries and posts. That's good. It's working. And she says that shows it works. I did see on Find a Grave, someone had some misinformation on a daughter of my Thomas Jones. I sent the corrections along with the names of all of her siblings and full dates of their births. And I indicated which ones are also on Find a Grave if he wants to tie them together. One thing I was amazed at was a multi-page article that I found. It's called the Lincoln Kinsman, written in 1938. It included a lot of information on the Bush family, which is another of her family lines, apparently. The article even included what I think is my ancestor, Hannah Bush Radley. The article really fleshed out information on Christopher Bush, father of Hannah. The editor of the article was a director of the Lincoln National Life Foundation. I found their site, did a Radley search, and only match was an author named Kenneth Radley, who wrote a book in 1989 on the Civil War. Since he's interested in history, I wonder if he's interested in his family tree. When I get some time, I may try contacting the foundation, plus see if I can locate Kenneth Bradley. Thank you for the great presentation. No matter how many times I hear you, I learn something new every time. Well, That's good to hear. Thank you so much for sending in this email, Joan. I really do appreciate it. Um, Love those seminars. We had a great time out there in Mission Viejo. And, you know, seminars are a fabulous way to really dig in for a full day all together and flesh out lots of strategies that everyone can walk away with and really start making progress. Uh, And I'm always available for seminars. So if anybody's interested, if you're part of a genealogy society, like Joan is, you can head over to genealogygems.com and you'll find booking information for moi over under um, seminars in the menu. So check that out. Uh, And I love that Joan is trying different Google search strategies with multiple family lines. Sometimes we do find our own queries or blog posts we've already put out there which again, does show that it's working. And that can seem disappointing and useless. But you know, Joan is right. It shows that the search terms that you're using are really the right ones. 
I like that she took the opportunity to tidy up some of the misinformation that she's finding on Find a Grave. Um, you know, volunteers who work on that site do some amazing work, getting gravestones imaged and transcribed and connecting relatives as best they can figure out from whatever information that they have on hand. But sometimes it does take more than one of us to configure an entire ancestral family the right way. So good for you, Joan, for getting out there and, you know, helping to make it as correct as possible. I also love that she found an article on her family and she took what she learned to the next level. She went looking for the author of the article, found a possible family connection, who's also a history lover. Um, So she's got her next step planned out to find him. So that's really cool. One suggestion for her now is that she listened to a two-episode series. It's in my free step-by-step genealogy podcast series. It's called Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. Episode 14 and 15 are on how to contact long-lost relatives. I interviewed a relative of my own who's inspiring success and fabulous tips on cold calling and connecting can get even the shyest or most reluctant person to uh, reach out and to help us out. So um, that might come in handy as she's reaching out to people that she doesn't know yet. (laughs) So that's Family History Genealogy Made Easy. And those are episodes 14 and 15. And if you're listening to this podcast through the Genealogy Gems app, which you can get in your app store, uh, whether you're on Windows, phones, or iOS, or Android, Your bonus content for this episode is a handy cheat sheet. It's a PDF that summarizes 14 updated tips from that series on cold contacting distant relatives. It's got brand new suggestions that aren't included in those original episodes too, including several ways to find potential relatives' names during the research process. So be sure, and uh, if you're not already using our Genealogy Gems app, there's lots of goodies tucked in there that are exclusive to the app. And it's available, like I say, for all the different kinds of phones and tablets that you've got. So it's also a really super easy way to listen and stream the show and to listen offline so that you can download whichever which episodes you want to listen to. And then if you're offline or you don't want to do it over data and you don't have a Wi-Fi connection available, you can still listen to the episodes. So it's very handy in that respect. And here's another email that I loved. It came, no kidding, the day after I published Genealogy Gems podcast episode 197 last month. I remember it because I had worked until 1145 that night before publishing the episode and then the newsletter we did that week. And then I collapsed into bed. The next morning I woke up and this was my first email that I read. So it turns out that Vonda listened to the episode right away, took a tip to heart, followed it, and even published her find on her blog all within 24 hours. Wow. (laughs) I thought I was a workaholic. Then she emailed me to report I'm going to read this to you. It's from Vonda. She wrote, I just listened to the first segment of your new podcast episode. So she's talking about 197. And I had to share what I discovered. I wrote a blog post about it that explains it all. Bottom line, you helped me find my great grandparents marriage record. I would love it if you have time to read it. Oh, and I only started the blog because of your podcasts as well. So thank you for that too. So of course, I dropped everything and I went right to it. 
um, Vonda's blog is called Genealogist by Night, a title I think a lot of us can relate to. And she gave me her blessing to share her post with you here. It's called Right Under Your Nose, or at least your fingertips, Dickey Family About 1909. So the post starts with these words, and I quote, Thank you, Lisa Louise Cook. I woke up a little early to noodle around with my genealogy, and I saw I had a new Genealogy Gems podcast to listen to, episode 197. As I made the coffee, I was listening to Lisa talk about how she found the exact marriage date of her great-grandparents, a fact that had eluded her for several years. She had searched in depth, found nothing, and set it aside. She finished the segment by encouraging listeners to try again on a tough problem. Well... I, too, had a set of great-grandparents with a mystery marriage. I actually had the date, but I had never been able to find the civil record. I had come to the private conclusion that perhaps a marriage hadn't even taken place. I was wrong. Following Lisa's advice, I sat down with my coffee and I loaded up FamilySearch.org. I typed in Marion Dickey and Sarah Jane Reck and clicked on marriages with the dates from 1890 through 1900. I didn't specify a location. Now here, Vonda shows a screenshot on her blog post of her great-grandparents' marriage record at FamilySearch.org. And true enough, Frances M. Dickey married Jenny Reck on April 3rd, 1896. Oh, in a place I recognize, Randolph County, Indiana. That's where my great-great-grandfather's marriage took place. And she continues in her post, I was dumbstruck. I had spent a good chunk of 1994 mailing with stamps, letters, on paper to nearly a dozen counties where I thought the marriage could have occurred. This couple lived in both western Ohio and eastern Indiana, so I concentrated in that area. I included an SASE, kids even know what that is, to ensure a reply, and I kept all those. I saw the above record came from Randolph County, Indiana, and I was curious as to whether or not I had tried that one. Guess what they had said? We're sorry. We have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) I had given them the exact date, the exact woman's name, the correct man's surname, and what would be a matching middle initial. Seriously? So 22 years after receiving word that my great-grandparents were not in the index in Randolph County, Indiana, I present to you their marriage record. I found this record in less than one minute, drinking coffee before 7 a.m. on a workday. How sweet is that? Thanks again to Lisa Louise Cook for her great podcasts and encouragements. You are so welcome, Vonda, but this is all you're doing, I think. You know, and at the end of the post, she adds um, this little PS. She says, I love this record because my dad told me that Marion, his grandfather, was named after the Revolutionary War figure Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox. I have seen no records that show his first name being Francis until today. I'm doing the happy dance. Now, go looking for something you had given up on. Hey, that is great advice to everyone. And I share Vonda's sentiments there. What a great story. And I love her encouragement to have us all go try one of our brick walls again. And by the way, I think it's quite a coincidence that the great grandfather that I talked about in the opening of that episode was born in the same county where she found her elusive marriage record. I love it. 
And some of my other favorite stories from you come when I am at conferences at some and seminars. And people come up to me all the time to tell me what they've discovered. When I can, I record some of these to share with you because they are so cool. Here's one from just a few weeks ago. Uh, I recorded it at the Texas State Genealogical Society Conference. Oh, wonderful. Tell us your name. Gay Carter. Gay, you said you had a YouTube success story. I'd love to hear it. I do. Well, naturally, I was listening to your iPod. I was catching up. And you talked about, uh, was it Sonny who doubted the YouTube thing? Yes. And, you know, and I'm listening going, oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's what she said. (laughs) So I thought, okay, I'm going to try this. I was born and grew up in Freeport, Texas. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I put in Freeport, Texas history as in YouTube, you in YouTube, okay. in the search in YouTube, right? And you know, got several hits, and one of them was for the um, ceremony when they opened the saline water treatment plant in Freeport, Texas, which was in 1961. And my family went to that. So I went, oh, I've got to see this. So I, I went, and part, and they had two or three videos associated with that. One of them was a newsreel footage that had been shot at the ceremony. They panned the audience on the front row. There I was, my sister, my mother, my grandmother, and my great aunt right in a row front and center i'm going i can't believe this like a family reunion on youtube it was and and, you know and i go well lisa was right she always is (laughs) so so i've been wanting to tell you ever since that's amazing and this was a saline treatment plant okay if if you can find your family history on youtube in in that video anybody can find anything wouldn't you agree i would agree with that absolutely that's fantastic thank you for sharing have a wonderful time here at the texas state conference thank you i will Later, I repeated that YouTube search that Gay did of Freeport, Texas history to zero in on the right film. I added the search terms saline plant. The top search result was a newsreel showing John F. Kennedy ceremonially opening the plant from his desk in the Oval Office after giving a little speech about how important this plant was, converting seawater to freshwater. Then... The newsreel jumped to the plant site, and you immediately see the camera pan across the front row. There's a young lady right there with an entire row of women seated next to her, and I'm guessing I'm looking at Gay and her family in 1961. Wow, what a find to share with her family at the next family reunion or on social media. So check out the show notes for a screenshot from that video and a link to watch in case you're curious and would like to see Gay. Gay mentioned a story I told at the conference about how Jim's editor, Sonny Morton, was a little skeptical at first about the whole idea of finding your family history on YouTube. And I'll link to that story in the show notes, too. Her find was so amazing. Her father-in-law now has an enlarged still shot from this video that she found, framed and hanging in his home, of the grandfather that he never got to meet. 
until he met him on YouTube. Thanks to all of you for writing in. I love hearing from you. And if you want to reach out to me and share your success story with me and everybody else listening, we will love it. We will be inspired by it. Send it to genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com or call into the voicemail line 925-272-4021. sponsor for this episode is MyHeritage, which has over 70 million members worldwide. If you're serious about making connections in the country where your ancestors once lived, hands down, MyHeritage is the place that you want to be. Post your tree on MyHeritage and start to see the magic as they automatically match it up with other trees, not just with genealogists in the country where you live, but around the world. Trees aren't primary sources, but they are excellent leads. I uploaded a portion of my family tree that contains my German heritage, and that's where I was really hoping to make a breakthrough, and very quickly it happened. I received a message from a distant cousin in Germany. That was my first international cousin contact. But there's more at MyHeritage. Their unique and powerful search system, it's called Record Matches. It constantly calls over 5 billion historical records for your family. It's the only family history interface out there using semantic analysis to search newspaper articles, books, and other free text documents. It is also the first to translate names between languages. Find out what MyHeritage can do to help you grow your family tree. Visit MyHeritage.com. It's free to get started, so there's really no reason to wait. And there are billions of reasons to try it out. Visit MyHeritage.com. Christmas fast approaching and our Genealogy Gems Book Club featured book being This Victorian Life, this just seemed like the perfect opportunity to invite the book's author, Sarah Christman, to the podcast to explore the Victorian Christmas with us. But first, let's get in the Victorian Christmas mood with a little music. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you. 
Now I know in a separate segment here on the podcast, in another episode, we'll be digging into your book, The Victorian Life, which is one of several books that you've written, I know, on your personal experience of living a Victorian lifestyle in the 21st century. But today, I wanted to head back to Victorian times with you, uh, to the world of the Victorian Christmas that perhaps our ancestors enjoyed. So as we stroll into the Victorian living room, now we're going to see the tree. So tell us about the Victorian Christmas tree. Well, it's a it's a fun tradition because it's one that was introduced by Victoria's consort, Prince Albert. It had been a German tradition for a very long time. And Prince Albert was from one of the, the German principalities. And he brought it to England. And it became very iconic for this holiday that we all know and love and it originally comes from old pagan times there's really nothing about a tree particularly that correlates with the birth of christ (laughs) but it is a winter tradition that goes back very far in germany and he brought it to england so it really did kind of start with the victorian era and um, i imagine back then i mean we see pictures of them lighting candles on the tree to light the tree, which of course makes us all cringe. We worry about fire. How do you light or do you light your Victorian Christmas tree? Well, we haven't been able to find the little candle holders for it yet, but at some point we will. And honestly, to be perfectly honest and give you full disclosure, our first few years in our house, we couldn't afford a Christmas tree because we're <laughs> we're not rich people. Right. And the whole way we we have to we're trying to set up our home it takes a lot of resources and so for our first few years in this house what we were actually doing when we moved in there was a, a hedge of arborvitaes in the backyard and so for the first few years we were chopping down an arborvitae every year <laughs> but you know i would still make popcorn strings to go on it to make it as pretty as i could and we would we would hang our family christmas ornaments on it because even though we didn't have the money to really do everything as much as our ideal would have liked, we still wanted to to keep the traditions and to keep everything that was important to us. And it was, we felt, okay, sure, it's an Arbor Vitae, but it's the spirit of the holiday that really matters. And a lot of that comes up, honestly, in Victorian Christmas stories about it might not be the ideal but it's the spirit of the holiday that matters. And that's what we really have to uphold. Exactly. And you do what you can do and, and still enjoy it. And, and like you say, feel the spirit of it. Talk to us a little bit, because we, we didn't get an opportunity to talk about it in the, the book interview. Describe your home a little bit to us. I know you live in Port Townsend, and I have had the pleasure of being there. In fact, I think the first getaway my husband and I ever had together was in a bed and breakfast in Port Townsend, which is full of lovely old Victorian homes. So I'd love to have you give us a a kind of a quick audio tour of your home. What's it like? Sure. Well, our house, they started building it in 1888, finished it in 1889. And 1889 is actually the year that Washington, where we live, became a state. So it's a very pivotal time for this area in the Pacific Northwest. And the gentleman who built it was sort of a funny guy. He, well, not funny. He was 
uh, canny. He was a canny businessman. What he would do is he would build a home, live in it just long enough to pay owner's taxes instead of builder's taxes. Then he would move down the street, build another one, do the same thing, <laughs> and keep going. So, so there are actually three houses on our block that are pretty much identical, and one of them's ours. It is a middle-class home, which those didn't get saved quite as much as the, the really big, iconic Queen Anne mansions that became bed and breakfasts because people didn't necessarily realize that they were worthy of preservation. And so we were, we were lucky to find this one, and it was a house we could afford <laughs> mm-hmm. because we are middle-class people. And in the parlor, there is a little bit of plaster work around the bay window, which the bedroom, which is right above the parlor, is in many ways a copy of the parlor, but because it's a more private area, it doesn't have that fancy plaster work because the parlor was a place where people who visited would see. And so that's where the investment was made in a little bit fancier things that would be on display. And in our parlor, we have a rug from Gabriel's family. It's an antique rug. We also have furniture that is East Lake style furniture. It's got, in the Victorian era, there was a marvelous medieval revival where a lot of imagery was used from old medieval imagery and so the the east lake furniture has beasts carved into it now you can't really tell whether these are supposed to be dragons or whether they're supposed to be maybe dogs or maybe they're supposed to be some other sort of animal they're just they're just general medieval beasts right <laughs> and um we also because we're actually people who are really big into cycling. My husband works at a bicycle shop. We've got our antique bicycles in the parlor because that's where that's where we have space for them. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, that would be considered a real retro decorating uh, these days, right? So you have your Christmas tree in your parlor mm-hmm. and your bay window. And I'm interested to know, in Victorian times, were, was present giving as dominant as it is today? Not, it wasn't quite as hugely commercial a thing as it was today. People didn't really go out and spend, you know, a month's pay on huge, fancy Christmas presents for everybody they knew. But gift giving was definitely something that was done. And a lot of the gifts, they were smaller than a lot of Christmas gifts tend to be today. You wouldn't have the equivalent of you know, a new television <laughs> right? in terms of cost. A lot of the gifts were little things. A lot of them were handmade. And the ladies' magazines by the 1880s and 90s, they were running columns around the holidays on things we can make to give our friends, to give our family. These would be knitted things. Sometimes they would be pictures they could paint. They would be needlework And they would also often be things made out of items that people could collect from the natural world, like pine cones, and we'll get into that a little later. And there were especially a lot of gifts for children. And one source I came across at one point was saying that this started when 
that originally it actually was just gift giving for children, but then the tradition of giving them to older people and to mother and father came when one visitor to Germany had seen this tradition that everyone in the family was giving gifts, which hadn't actually been as common. It just happened to be a tradition in this one family. And But then when everyone in England and America read about this, they thought, oh, what a wonderful tradition that they're doing all over this other country. We should have that here. <laughs> and so it read like wildfire. Which is, likes a it's gift. A, absolutely. Absolutely. What, is there anything that would surprise us, do you think, about Victorian times or perhaps a tradition that has fallen by the wayside? Well, let's see. I, I like what I was saying before about making things from the natural world. That's a really fun one. And actually, I'm a big, I didn't realize I would be until I tried making making this myself for the first time, but I'm actually a big fan of fruitcake. I think fruitcake has gotten a bad rap. <laughs> <laughs> Because there are so many jokes now that are, it, it's become a cliche that, oh, I, I don't remember who first created the joke about there only being one fruitcake and it being given, right. it passed on. But when I tried making a fruitcake for the first time from a 19th century recipe, I had to stop myself from giving myself a stomach ache because I just wanted to keep eating it. <laughs> and... When I was at the grocery store buying more of the the things that go into it, I I confessed sort of sort of shyly and with a sense of shame to the grocery store checker that I really like fruitcake and I I was sort of embarrassed by this and she she looked at me and said I love fruitcake so I think it's sort of this guilty guilty pleasure that a lot of people not necessarily would admit to because <laughs> right. it's. Because it's gotten a bad reputation, but I think it deserves to be revisited. <laughs> well, and I imagine that over the decades and centuries that that, uh, as it got kind of commercialized and processed, <laughs> that uh, it doesn't taste the same as one made from a, a true Victorian recipe. Uh, I know recipes do kind of take on a life of their own. So actually in the show notes for this episode, we're going to have some recipes that uh, Sarah has shared with us. And one of the other things I love in addition to to cooking as I love crafts and I love beautiful things as I know the Victorians did as well. And on your blog, you shared an article. It was called a pine cone Christmas and it was written by Mary E. Child for good housekeeping back in December 6th of 1890. And I thought that it was a, a wonderful old Victorian Christmas story, but also offered some examples of, like you said, of some of the projects and some of kind of going back to nature. So I'd love to uh, finish up this segment by having you share with us first, if you have any particular crafts that you have enjoyed creating over time, and then maybe give us, read us the uh, final passage from that pine cone Christmas story. Sure. So our first Christmas when we were here and we didn't have hardly any money, but I wanted to give Gabriel a nice Christmas. What I did was I found copies of 19th century books that I could download the files of them off of Google Books, the advanced book search. You can search for books by year. And so I was able to print out copies of these old books. I couldn't afford the antique copies, but I could print out these copies of these old books. And then I bound them myself by hand. I 
folded all the pages and I sewed all the books. The little groups of pages are called signatures in a book. So I sewed all the signatures together and then I bound them with leather that we happen to have little scraps of leather around. And so I was able to give him all these 19th century books. And I was also able to... (laughs) able to download some magazines like the old good housekeepings uh, some cycling magazines from the time and i gave him what i called a subscription to these 19th century yeah so I what love i that. i printed them all out and i bound them as magazines and then i i hid them and then every month at the start of the month i would give him a new one <laughs> the next issue and so that 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 became a really fun tradition for us that we've done a number of years. And it's a, another way of connecting with each other and connecting with the past. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. Well, and Google Books is right up our alley. I talk about it in my book, and we've talked about it a lot here on the show. A wonderful resource <laughs> for Victorian research and um, experiencing the old magazines and the books of the past. I'd love to have you share that, that kind of the finale of that story, which I think sums up the Victorian Christmas so nicely from A Pinecone Christmas. Sure. So the plot of this story is that there is a teacher who is boarding with a poor farming family, and she knows that they're not going to have the money to have a real Christmas. But she wants to give them something, and she has no money herself, but she realizes that the pine trees around the house have really beautiful cones and she thinks she can make something out of them. And she does. And she gives them a a pine cone Christmas, she calls it. And so the story ends. It was too bad to stop the fun and say goodbye to Christmas and go away. But little eyes, even at Christmas, will not stay open all night. And finally wraps were donned and the teams driven up from the barn and full of the pinecone Christmas, the guests said good night, each declaring that there must be another such time next year. By and by, they were all snugly tucked away under the big buffalo robes, and one after another, the teams and cutters pulled out of the yard with their laughing loads, every one giving a final cheer for the Stevenson's pinecone Christmas. When it was all over and the family were taking a last look for the night at the presents, the farmer said, almost sharply to teacher, See here. Where'd all these things come from? You didn't go off and buy them, did ye? Miss Stain laughed. I said it would be a pinecone Christmas, and it was from first to last, she insisted. Then she told them how she had made fancy-shaped bonbon boxes, which she had sold to the confectioner at Annis for a good price, and that three of the large boxes, which no one seemed to have missed, she had disposed of at a fancy store in that town. The money had purchased the tapers and candy, besides the gifts, and had repaid her for the original outlay in oil, ribbon, etc. But she said nothing about the sash, only, I am so glad you are pleased. But you haven't had a single thing, Benny suddenly cried with contrition. That's so, but here's a kiss, and I'll never miss in geography again so long as I live, cried loving little Bess. They did not know that Miss Stain, having learned that it is more blessed to give than to receive, had reaped the richest harvest of pleasure from the Pinecone Christmas. Sarah, thank you so much for reading that and for sharing your Victorian Christmas with us. It's been a great pleasure. Merry Christmas to everyone.
I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It's fun to look into the past and see just how many holiday traditions have survived for more than a century. And just a reminder to those of you who are Genealogy Gems premium members, or who are thinking about giving themselves the gift of premium membership for Christmas, um, Sarah joins us again in this month's Genealogy Gems premium podcast episode that's going to be released in just two weeks. She'll talk in more details about her Victorian era life as she lives it each day and writes about it in her memoirs, This Victorian Life and Victorian Secrets, and what she also writes about in a book on Victorian manners and a historical fiction series based on that time period. So, see the show notes for more on the upcoming interview and all of Sarah's books. conversation, this next gem seems so fitting. It's about a popular pastime from the Victorian era in which people expressed their interests and creativity and sometimes their personal histories too. It's called scrapbooking. Now I'm not talking about the modern version of scrapbooking that's part diary, part storage for little keepsake papers, part photo album and sometimes works of art with fancy embellishments and paper crafting. The Victorian era actually coined the phrase scrapbooking because they pasted actual paper scraps into books. And these could be greeting cards, postcards, calling or visiting cards, invitations, awards won at school or in a Sunday school. They also cut out whatever little items caught their eye from magazines or newspapers, advertisements or poems, or sayings or sketches of the latest fashion, hairstyles, famous people, or exotic places. Those who could afford it bought what were called relief scraps. These were printed just for the scrapbooking hobby. These were colorful images of things like flowers, children, animals, angels, or Father Christmas, raised or embossed on the paper, which is why they called them reliefs. Some were pre-cut, kind of like modern die cuts, But others you could buy in sheets, like modern sticker sheets, only not sticky, and then you'd carefully cut them out. Relief scraps could be used as embellishments around other items on scrapbook pages, but sometimes they were the only decoration on a page, kind of arranged in a pretty pattern on a scrapbook page, often grouped with other items like it. All these items may not seem that personal to us, not in the way that we would personalize an album today with our own memories and family pictures and the like, but the pictures and arrangements reflected the tastes and the interests of the scrapbook creator, and some scrapbooks did get more personal. Some people pasted in letters, and as I mentioned, other little ephemera, such as awards or invitations or calling cards, all those items reflected something about a person's life. A schoolgirl might copy in passages like she, that she liked from her favorite authors. A homemaker might paste in recipes or tips from a woman's magazine. A seamstress or a fashion-forward girl might cut out drawings of fashionable dresses, perhaps paste it in alongside a sketch or a fabric swatch. A nature lover might collect botanical drawings and leaves. Someone who loved history might compile famous scenes and history from calendar pages or postcards. 
children were often given scrapbooks on rainy days and Sundays when they needed something to do with their energy and their time. They might be just for fun, but often they were meant to be instructional. In fact, I found a ladies' home journal magazine. It was from 1891 at Hathi Trust Digital Library, which I'll tell you more about using in the show notes. The article describes, quote, a Sunday scrapbook as a source of almost unlimited pleasure and profit to children who can read and write, unquote. The article explains how children should be given little images and a Bible and told to find a scripture verse to go with the image and then put it all in the scrapbook. According to the article, this employment cultivates the imagination, the hand gains skill, great facility is obtained in finding scripture references, while the verses are unconsciously committed to memory. I was looking at absolutely gorgeous Victorian-era scrapbook pages that are digitized online at the Library of Birmingham in the UK. At this site, and I'll share the link with you in the show notes, you'll see an elaborate leather cover with tool designs and scrolling writing. There are pages with pasted-in images of animals, some cut out and some in rectangular cards, and a pre-printed fill-in-the-blank invitation for a Mrs. M. Tompkinson to attend a fancy dress ball at the town hall in honor of the Queen's Jubilee birthday on May 24th, 1887. There are pages of cut-out colorful flowers and children and parties and young ladies, and an entire page of cut-out sketches of women's hairstyles and fashions. And what do you know, there's even a newspaper or magazine advertisement for relief scraps. The ad promises, quote, 20 selected sheets, upwards of 200 images for just six pennies. And it says, and I quote, scraps for scrapbooks, scraps to delight baby, scraps for screens, scraps to amuse the youngster, scraps for decorations, scraps for winter evenings, unquote. The company was Mason Roberts on Fleet Street in London and it offered its 1888 illustrated catalog and calendar for just a penny. Times change, of course, and things have changed ever since the recent scrapbooking craze in the 1990s that had many of us buying archival albums for the first time. Today, many people create digital scrapbooks instead, or they use Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat to capture and compile and share photos and written memories. It's very similar. The memes we post, the video snippets that we share, how different are these really than the sayings or images of Victorian-era scrapbooker? I mean, sure, they're a different media, but they communicate some of the same things. Our interests, fads, fashions, whatever catches our eye and makes us want to preserve and share it. So take a minute and check out some absolutely stunning Victorian scrapbooking pages On Pinterest at Lisa Louise Cook's Genealogy Gems, you'll find it at Pinterest.com slash Lisa Louise Cook. And I'm also on Instagram. I've actually just gotten really big into Instagram lately. And not only do I really enjoy, um, you know, posting to it, but I really enjoy following other genealogists as well. And go to the show notes to find the BBC historian Ruth Goodman demonstrating how to make your own Victorian style scrapbook. And finally, Genealogy Gems Premium members who are looking for ideas to inspire homemade holiday heritage gifts should log in at genealogygems.com and watch the premium video. It's called Inspiring Ways to Captivate the Non-Genealogists in Your Life. 
I've got loads of ideas for you in that video class. And I'll have a link in the show notes for a little um, short teaser of that class. So if you're not a Jim's premium member, you can go check it out. I'm a firm believer in taking responsibility for the life and future of my genealogy data. So instead of just uploading my information only onto someone else's genealogy website, I enter it into my master database on my computer into the premier genealogy software program. It's Roots Magic at rootsmagic.com. Genealogy software is Roots Magic's primary focus. It's not just a sideline. And I continue to be really impressed by their free online training videos and all the rich features they add. And here's the latest. Not only can you import a GEDCOM file from another program, but now with the release of Ritzmagic 7.1, you can directly import any Family Tree Maker file with everything attached. That's everything attached. In fact, Roots Magic can import a bigger variety of older Family Tree Maker files than any single version of Family Tree Maker itself. It's just one more way that Roots Magic has been reaching out to the genealogy community and helping them care for their most precious data, their family tree. And there's even more to look forward to this year because Roots Magic has announced an agreement with Ancestry. And later this year, they're going to be able to synchronize your family tree with Ancestry the same way that Family Tree Maker did. There's never been a better time to try or switch to Roots Magic. Head to RootsMagic.com and download the free Roots Magic Essentials today. You're going to love it. That's RootsMagic.com. You know, now that I've moved to Texas and what they lovingly call Tornado Alley, I'm more aware than ever that if anything ever happened to my genealogy files, I would be devastated. And boy, have my files expanded since I started this research at the ripe old age of eight years old. As genealogists, we don't just have paper files anymore, but we also have digital files like our genealogy database and precious old photos that we've spent hours scanning No matter where we upload our family tree or anything else relating to our family history on the web, the responsibility for the total safety and security of our files lies with us. That's why I'm so proud to announce that Backblaze is now the official backup of Lisa Louise Cook and Genealogy Gems. For the past few years, I've been researching and I've been test driving backup services and hands down, Backblaze is my choice. It's certainly the easiest service to use. And I love their free app that allows me to access all my files on my smartphone and my tablet. Plus, it backs up everything, including my video files. Yikes, I didn't realize before looking at Backblaze that other services skip over backing up videos. So don't wait another day to ensure that all your files are safe and secure. Back them up like I do with Backblaze. Head to backblaze.com slash Lisa and scroll down. You'll see my smiling face there and a great offer. Just 50 bucks for a year's peace of mind and the best cloud backup around. Go to backblaze.com slash Lisa. Hello, Genealogy Gems podcast listeners. This is Diane Southard, your DNA guide. 
I don't think there's much dispute that the four major online resources for genealogy include Ancestry.com, FamilySearch.org, Find My Past, and MyHeritage. Of those four, only Ancestry.com has attempted any real integration of DNA test results into traditional genealogy. That is, until recently. On May 19, 2016, MyHeritage announced that they would add a DNA matching service to their offering. And then, on November 7th, they announced they would be conducting DNA tests themselves. Now, MyHeritage has enjoyed partnerships with testing companies 23andMe and Family Tree DNA for quite some time now, but those partnerships have been woefully underutilized and are really little more than an affiliate service, where MyHeritage provided a discounted rate to test at those companies. So there's no question that the launch of DNA Heritage fully into the genetic genealogy market is exciting news. In fact, it's something I have been pushing for. We absolutely need someone to challenge Ancestry DNA because competition is good. In September, they began to provide matching results for individuals who had uploaded their results. As of today, uploading your results into MyHeritage is still free. So if you've been thinking about doing it, you should take advantage of that sooner rather than later, as they have indicated they will charge for that in the future. As expected, the matches at MyHeritage are only as good as the depth of the database, and it's early in the game, so their database is small. But even now, we can get an idea of what to expect from MyHeritage as they take their first steps into genetic genealogy. One of the most exciting elements of their November 7th announcement is their development of a founder population project, where they've handpicked individuals to represent their reference population for calculating ethnicities. They plan to launch with 25 population groups, but will likely increase to 100 in a fairly short amount of time. This is a far more advanced ethnicity report than is currently offered anywhere else. After you've figured out how to download your raw data from your testing company and then manage to add it to MyHeritage, if you need help, you can see my website. The link is in the show notes. But then you have to wait the requisite amount of time for those results to process at MyHeritage. Then you'll receive a notice that you have new DNA matches. For a full review of the features and ins and outs of where to click and what to look at at MyHeritage, please refer to their September blog post. That link is also in the show notes. As for my favorite features, I like how they list all the possible relationships that make sense between you and your match, taking into account multiple factors like your age, gender, and your genetics, instead of a simple generic range like second to fourth cousins. The accompanying chart that visually shows you all possible relationships is also very helpful. You can access it by clicking on the little question mark next to the relationship suggestions. I like that these suggestions remind us that our genetic relationships have different genealogical interpretations. So, a second cousin once removed, a first cousin twice removed, and a second cousin all fall within a similar genetic range, and it really is impossible to determine your exact relationship based on the genetics alone. I also like that they're providing all three genetic descriptors of your relationship, total amount of shared DNA, how many segments are shared, and the size of the longest piece of shared DNA. While this is more of an intermediate to advanced piece of your results, it can be important as your relationship analysis becomes more involved. One unique claim made by MyHeritage in their press release about their matching feature addresses a main concern that genetic genealogists have, the lack of pedigree information provided by their matches. 
MyHeritage claims that 95% of their DNA samples have pedigrees attached. That is remarkable. However, from my own quick calculation of my matches, the number with pedigrees is more like 60%. They also indicated that they will soon be doing a bit of pedigree analysis for you by providing a list of shared surnames and locations between you and your match based on the pedigrees you have both submitted. This will certainly be a welcome addition. According to the November 9th Q&A, which you can also find a link to in the show notes, they haven't decided yet if the ethnicity features will be available to those who only transfer their results, and they hint at many more features they have in the works that may only be offered to those who actually purchase their test. In short, the MyHeritage site is currently functioning much like the top three genetic genealogy sites, and, like the free tool GEDmatch, offers a meeting place for those who've been tested at one company and want to meet individuals who've tested at another, with the added bonus of a promise of new features on the horizon. All in all, it's an exciting time to be a genetic genealogist. Thanks for joining me on this journey. I'm Diane Southerd, your DNA guide. It's almost time to say goodbye, but before we do, I have a holiday-themed Profile America segment to play for you. Have you read or watched this Christmas classic? Profile America, Friday, December 16th. One of the most familiar and cherished Christmas stories has been around a long time, 173 years, in fact. Tomorrow marks the anniversary of the 1843 publication of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol with sales starting on December 19. The first print run of 6,000 copies sold out in a week, and the book has never been out of print. The tale about the reformation of Ebenezer Scrooge and his bah humbug dismissal of the Christmas season became a solid holiday tradition over the years in the U.S. The story has been told on radio, on stage, in school programs, in the movies, and on television. It's a safe bet that A Christmas Carol will be aired this holiday season on many of the nation's 2,148 television broadcasting establishments. You can find more facts about America's people, places, and economy from the American Community Survey at census.gov. As you gear up for the holiday season, I hope that you'll have a little time to reflect and enjoy your own favorite holiday traditions from whatever era, the Victorians or the 1940s or the one you just started a couple of years ago. Why do you have these traditions? What meaning do they have for you? Have you talked about what they mean to you with the people around you, such as a spouse or children or grandchildren? Don't just pass the tradition forward pass on the meanings or memories that go with them, and that will help ensure that they live on into the future. As I close, I send out a holiday thank you to the Genealogy Gems podcast production team. Editor Sonny Morton works with me on the editorial lineup and content for this show. We've already got some fun things planned for 2017, including our special 200th episode in February, which also celebrates our 10th anniversary. And additional content for today's show comes from your DNA guide, Diane Southerd. Vienna Thomas, my wonderful oldest daughter, is the show's audio editor. And I'm your host and producer, Lisa Louise Cook. Learn more about us at our companion website, genealogygems.com. Thanks for listening, friend, and happy holidays. I'll talk to you soon.